Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. How's it going, Lance? It's going so well. It really is uh, a wonderful day. This is a wonderful interview. This episode is something a little bit different. Uh, it deviates just a bit from the from the usual uh, true crime, but it's uh, a very fascinating interview nonetheless. Um, and when we interview people like this, this is a gentleman named Gary Lockman, and uh, I'm a huge fan because he was technically the uh, second bass player in the classic rock band Blondie. He uh, joined Blondie in 1975, and, and he replaced the original bass player. He was there for two years before moving on to other things. One of these other things is his work in... Um, synchronicities and mysticism and uh that you know things of that ilk and um yeah a lot of books yeah he's a writer lots of books excited about the uh alistair crowley book that he wrote but sometimes i get really nervous during interviews like this and my voice tends to raise a bit so after a while i start to sound a little bit like jennifer amell which is uh pretty interesting in this interview that i sound like jennifer amell <laughs> uh, Jennifer Amell, of course, our coworker. Yeah, I can't think of any other reason why you'd sound like Jennifer Amell in this interview. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> so Jennifer Amell is actually in this interview and not Lance. Uh, there was a little bit of a scheduling conflict uh, the day of. And really, Jen Jennifer actually brought this uh, topic to our attention to begin with. Yeah, I was... Uh languishing one night during this long quarantine surfing Amazon Prime for something to watch. And I came across a very interesting lecture. Um, it was called Young and Hermeticism. Now, Hermeticism is one of those esoteric terms that not a lot of people have heard about, but it's kind of like the philosophic basis of a lot of magical thought. So I turned it on and it happened to be Gary Lachman. And so we invited Gary onto the show to talk about Carl Jung. And the conversation sort of deviated a lot into a topic called synchronicity. Yeah, it sure did. And he is, uh, I would say, really one of the leading experts in the world on it, I guess, because A, there aren't that many, um, because it is kind of a mysterious subject. And um, B, because he's got a book uh, about it that is coming out and is not out yet. Actually, his book, Young the Mystic, was written years ago. And uh, so we are talking mostly about his book called Young the Mystic. Carl Jung is actually a psychoanalyst and comes up a lot in the field of psychology. When you look into Freud, you end up finding Jung. And especially if you've ever delved into synchronicities, you will learn a little bit about Carl Jung and his work. And I think that's one reason this topic was so interesting to us, Jen, when you mentioned it. So a really fun conversation, interesting conversation, a little bit different uh, than a normal Crawl Space episode, I guess, because there's no real crime element. We, we stick to mystery here and psychology. I'd say that the real crime is uh, this conspiracy that, that was plotted against me because you guys knew how excited I was about Blondie, and I feel like I was just kind of shoehorned out of this because you thought, you thought I was going to maybe uh, fangirl a little bit too hard over him. That was exactly the, the conspiracy against you. We were, we were very worried that you would scare poor Gary away. Well, you heard it here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, I really hope you enjoy this conversation. We might do a little bit more in a, uh, a little bit of more of a deeper peek into synchronicity down the line. But follow us on social media, Crawlspace Pod on Twitter. Thanks a lot for listening. And follow Gary Lockman on Twitter at Gary Lockman and get his books. And check out his site at garylockman.co.uk. Welcome to the podcast, Gary. How are you today? I'm fine. I'm um, very good. It's a relatively nice uh, spring day here in London um, after a relatively difficult winter. So, good. Well, thank you for joining us. This uh, We're really excited about this interview. And uh, this is a topic that is sort of very near and dear to us. Uh, you have written a great book uh, called Young the Mystic that uh, our friend Jen introduced us to. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about this book? 
All right. Well, yeah, it's called Jung the Mystic. Um, that was the title that the uh, my editor at the time, uh, a fellow named Mitch Horowitz, uh, who's a writer as well, and uh, he was at Penguin. And um, he, he came up with that title because originally, this, I'll give you the real history of the book. Originally, uh, he had an idea for a kind of series on past masters sort of thing. And I said, well, if you do that, I'd like to do Jung. And so, because uh, it gave me a chance to say, okay, this is what I I can get out of this. And that's, that's why I like writing these books. I get to read all the stuff and then I get to think about it. And then I, okay, this is what I come away with uh, from it and so on. And so I wanted to do that with Jung because I was, uh, he was one of the first ones in this sort of genre, I guess you can call it, uh, that I read ages ago. But um, any case, after I delivered that, he said, well, he liked it. And he said, well, actually, you know, let's kind of widen it up a little bit more. Let's make it a standalone kind of thing. And um, so I just went back and, and expanded it a bit. In any case, but the idea was that, um, you know, it's so, I, I wanted it with a question mark, Jung, Jung the mystic, because it was sort of, um, that's the kind of the question. I mean, he himself said, you know, anyone who thought he was a mystic was an idiot. And that included quite a few people, um, it, including, as I say, in the beginning of the book, Jung himself, if you actually sort of take bits of what he says um because he um, like all great geniuses and and great mystics they they contradict themselves and they're very fertile and they give something people like um me to do uh, and try and show that that kind of stuff and so that was the idea saying was he a mystic and to take that along and then to show how all along he kind of played his esoteric or mystical or occult cards fairly close to his chest and you can understand why because he was you know second in command. He was sort of the Rolling Stones to Freud's The Beatles in terms of the history of sort of psychoanalysis. You know, he was the runner up or he was, uh, what was it? it? Used to be Avis. They tried harder than Hertz, who was the rental car that were number one. Any case, that, that probably dates me more than makes anything more clear <laughs> to people out there. So he was sort of next in line. And then, you know, it, it, he didn't want to sort of show too openly, but he had a lifelong interest in the occult and the esoteric and so on and so on. I mean, that's, it's, that's fairly obvious now. People know that now, but for most of his career, it wasn't until relatively late in life that he came out of the closet about it. And so that was interesting to me. And just to sort of uh, kind of trace that, that line. And what I wish I could have done and I wanted to do, but I didn't have enough space really because I couldn't expand it that much, um, was to bring in some comparisons I mean, I sort of name check people and uh, I think there's a long footnote where I sort of say there's some, to me at least, clear comparisons between some basic uh, ideas of Jung's and someone like Gorgiev and, and the, the sort of fourth way work. And, and that's an interesting thing because there are, there's people, there's one, one character, Morris Nichol, who was started out as Jung's sort of lieutenant in Britain. And then he jumped ship and uh, joined... Um, sort of the Gurdjieff and Uspensky uh, work and was Uspensky's student for a long time and then sort of taught the work himself and all that. So there's a kind of connection between those. So I, the, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's probably theses aplenty uh, about that by now. Um, and, and I'm amazed at how universities, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm approached by so many students that are studying the kinds of things that I read for fun you know, sort of 40 years ago. But it's, I, I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. It gives me something to do. They get in touch with me and ask me something about their thesis. I say, ah, oh, Carl, yeah, sure, I'll tell you. Any case, <laughs> so that's sort of the background to the book. And then I've done biographies of Rudolf Steiner and uh, Swedenborg and, and Uspensky. Um, and these are all figures in this uh, Western esoteric tradition or this alternative counter tradition uh, to the mainstream you know, Western intellectual um, you know, tradition. I'm wondering, uh, Gary, if you have come to a conclusion if Jung was a mystic or not. And do you think if there was no stigma attached to mysticism in Jung's time, would he consider himself a, a mystic? Well, he says anyone who considered him a mystic, you know, is an idiot. <laughs> so when I say I show, if you follow his definition, I mean, he says it, it comes, he kind of comes around, I mean, uh, there's a certain, what do you want to call it? There's a certain um, cachet around the word mystic um, in the West, at least, that generally means woolly-minded. And um, how should I say, unfortunately, some of Jung's prose uh, adds um, uh, support 
to uh, someone of, of a more, say, I don't know, prosaic mind of a more, or the positivist, you know, scientific or linguistic analysis uh, sort of mind, you know, coming to, uh, I mean, Arthur Kessler, who is, um, came, uh, you know, he was a Hungarian European ex-Marxist who wrote about science and creativity and, and psychology and the mind in the 60s into the 70s. Um, and he was very interested in synchronicity, meaningful coincidence, which is one of the coinages of Jung's. And he, Jung is someone who put that on the map. Um, but he sort of shows where Jung kind of, kind of writes around in circles and places. And so Jung is served very well by people like Marie von Franz, Marie-Louise von Franz, who was uh, one of his students, sort of, she was quite young. And uh, she um, writes in a very straightforward kind of Germanic kind of way. But Jung, is, Jung is very kind of circular circumnambulates around something it's more the journey than the than the destination but she's more like that and uh, and there's others who kind of you know um make him more direct but in any case uh, no he wouldn't consider himself a mystic he considered himself a scientist he considered himself an empiricist in the sense that um th these aren't metaphysical speculations what he's talking about these are actual discoveries of the mind of the psyche of the unconscious what he called the unconscious or the collective unconscious or what he also called the objective psyche, which I find uh, a more useful term because um, it doesn't have the collective sense to it, which somehow uh, can, be, can be kind of a one mind sort of, uh, um, can, can give that impression, which isn't exactly um, what, what he means. But um, I mean, it all depends what you mean by mystic. I mean, there's some, you know, there's like Sri Aurobindo, not Sri Aurobindo, but Sri Ramakrishna, or, you know, there's Hindu mystics who go into me deep meditative states, samadhi, and they experience this kind of total oneness. Or there's other mystics in the Christian tradition, let us say, who empty themselves out. It's this kenosis, it's this kind of emptying. Meister Eckhart is a classic example in the sort of Middle Ages. Um, and there's others, you know, along that kind of path uh, today, you know. Um, so... But that's not exactly what Jung, Jung, Jung did. I mean, he, he I, I would say he was a phenomenologist. And he even calls himself that too. And phenomenology is the study of, well, phenomena, how they appear, but not only phenomena out in the, um, what we call the physical world, but in this interior world, for sake of a better way to talk about it, because we only have spatial terms in order to talk about something that's actually not spatial. Because if you open my head, you certainly won't find anything particularly interesting there. It would just be a, you know, blobby mass of, of, of organic matter. There's no, you can, I mean, you can't, it's like, whoa, it's not there. So we, we just say in, in my head, because that's, we somehow assume that's where consciousness resides in the brain. We know it's directly related to it in many ways. But in um, any case, so I, I, I would say, no, Jung, but he, he trod paths that Freud, you know, um, didn't want to go, although he was aware of them, but Freud kind of put that aside. Um, uh, but, you know, and others just say, no, it's just, it's just madness. And they basically say Jung had a psychotic breakdown. And um, this is what the Red Book is about. You know, the Red Book is that fantastic uh, journal of his inner journeys following the breakup with Freud uh, for several years that was, um, no, no, well, only a handful of people knew about it and sort of languished, as far as I understand, you know, in this, this kind of cubbyhole in the kitchen for a long time. And then it, then it was published. In any case, I'm rambling on, but go on. No, 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 it's fine. It's <laughs> very interesting. And I, I beg to differ about there being nothing in your, in your very interesting mind, Gary. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, I'm just saying when we say in, in my head, yeah. is this, you know, it, it, physically, you, it's this, you know. It's, yeah, it's a metaphor. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I want let's let's backtrack a little bit in Jung's uh, biography. So at the time of his doctoral dissertation, he was interested in studying psychics. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, uh, yeah, it was about the psychology of so-called occult phenomena, something along those lines. And um, yeah, this was his uh, doctoral dissertation. It's a very, you know, uh, scientifically well-written, observed uh, document about what he presents as the subjective study of these seances he attended, but the actual fact he was, you know, very much a part of them. And um, the psychic in question was this cousin of his, 
that was in love with him or became in love with him during the process of this. And um, uh, Helena and uh, Heli, they called her. And um, yeah, she, well, it's in his family. I mean, this was something, again, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, he didn't just look in the, on Google and see where any psychics were in town. He could go sit in on one of the sessions. This was his family, his mother, he, his, he became, both sides of his family, very religious. It's another thing about Jung, you know, everyone around him was in the church in some way or another. And um, that his mother uh, attended seances and his uh, grandfather on his mother's side was uh, someone who absolutely believed in, you know, ghosts and spirits. And the story is that he kept a seat for his deceased first wife at, at the dinner table. I, I assume much to the chagrin to, of his living uh, second wife, uh, who was also sitting at the table as well. And then Jung's mother, uh, when she was a little girl, um, apparently when um, her fa- uh, you know, his, his grandfather w- was writing these sermons, she was uh, supposed to be around him, kind of dancing around and fluttering her hands to shoo the spirits away when the spirits were distracting him. And so it was a very, uh, and when Heli had these seances, they contacted um, Samuel, who was the grandfather. And um, she spoke in his voice and she spoke in languages that, you know, she didn't know and the, the usual thing. And Jung was very much involved in it and, and then wrote about it. He also, I mean, some of the, some of the fundamental ideas that uh, he later developed, like individuation, although he didn't call it, then individuation is this process where you become who you are. You know, you, 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 you have a self that uh, one unfolds or naturally it should unfold uh, through life. Uh, but one reason or another doesn't all the time where uh, if you undergo what he would later call his psychology, you can speed up the process. But there are indications of that in this where he sees in some of the voices or some of the um, personalities that emerged during the trances. Uh, one was a kind of more mature version of her herself. I mean, he, he describes her very un, uncharitably in, in the dissertation as, as uh, you know, not being particularly intelligent and kind of passive and, and dour. And he talks about her ha- having a rachitic skull, which um, uh, I, I, I think that's um, uh, got uh, rickets. I think that's sort of um, something like that. So she, you know, it, it it, 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 he, he, it didn't sit well with the rest of the family when, when they knew this is who they, who, who they were talking about. And, and she herself sort of was, you know, very put out by it and all that. And he continued um, his study of that on the side and, um, you know, kept up with all the contemporary writings about it. Because um, this was one of the, obviously the, one of the heydays or the heyday of sort of psychic research, the turn of the century, early uh, 20th century. And um, yeah, and there's the famous, you know, argument that he and Freud have. Yes. When, when he's, he's visiting um, Freud in Vienna and, uh, you know, Freud is poo-pooing all this notion of ghosts and spirits and poltergeists and all this kind of thing. And Jung's getting very, you know, uh, excited about it. And he feels his chest getting red hot, like the diaphragm was kind of an iron stove heating up. And there's a there's a bang in, in the bookcase. And Jung says, there, you know, Professor, that was an example of a exteriorized catalytic phenomena, which is this long-winded, <laughs> you know, t- term for a poltergeist. And you know, Freud says Bosch, or, you know, whatever Quatsch. <laughs> it's probably in Vienna is probably what he would have said. Uh, and 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 um, and then Jung said, No, it wasn't, and there'll be another right now. And then, then there was this loud bang. And the way Jung describes it is that Freud was aghast. And I can just imagine the cigar, you know, sort of falling out of his mouth and the eyebrows <laughs> going up or something. And funnily enough, in the, there's a Jung, there's a Freud museum. Huh? They, that was a Jungian slip. <laughs> uh, and there's a Freud museum uh, not far from where I live um, here in North London. And um, they have bookcases and they're supposed to have recreated his rooms in Vienna. Because he lived there for a year and he, he left because of the Anschluss, the Nazis, and he was, I think, 38, 39. But I asked the curator, the people there, I said, are these the original bookcases? And they said, yes, because he had it, he had it chipped. And I said, well, I wonder if the, does anyone ever check to see if the poltergeist was still 
in the bookcases. <laughs> and they said, oh, they didn't, they didn't want to say anything about it, but I don't know. That's curious. But uh, yeah, that's, that's a famous story. So, I mean, this is something that, you know, he, he was part of him, and, but uh, um, he very much wanted his discoveries, his experiences, these inner voyages that, that he went on and what he found on them to be considered to be discoveries, not something that he was inventing. This is the same reason why he didn't want to be considered an artist. So this the same reason he didn't want to be considered a mystic, the same reason he didn't want to be considered an artist. And whether you consider him a mystic or not, all you have to do is look at the Red Book and you know that, well, yeah, whether you like the art or not, you know he is an artist. I mean, there he is, right. I and mean, that's what he's doing. So it's kind of, um, I mean, that to me is a kind of obvious, some sort of self-denial there in some way. But And what, what was that bang in the cupboard? Was it, it was a knife that split? Is that, is that how the story goes? No, that's a different, that's a different story. Okay. Yeah. That, that, I mean, it, that's the, that's the story at, at Freud's house and then back home at, um, well, you know, with his, with his mother and, and the rest of the family. There are two occasions. Um, one was where um, in this old oak table and they're, I guess, Jung's in one room doing something and, you know, or somebody's in the other room and there's a sudden crack and they come in and they say the oak table has cracked, but not, not, it's cracked against the grain, not, not with the grain, which, you know, would be more understandable, but actually against the grain is very strange. And then um, it, it, there's no rational reason why that should have happened. And this is around this, this is around the time when the seances started up again, because they had been going on before, then they dropped out and then, these kind of things happen and that's when Jung's mother said oh maybe Samuel wants to get in touch again or something like that and then the other one was when Jung came back from I guess he was I don't know if, I, forget, I guess he was at university no he must have been at the Bergolzi or, so, or university or something like any case he came back home no he's at university he must have been and uh again his mother and 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 younger sister they're they're in in a in a you know sort of state and he asks what's up and um they say they heard this loud report in in the sideboard and they didn't know what it was and then he opened it and he found this butter or this knife bread knife a long bread knife that had been broken but you know sort of precisely into you know um neat little segments he kept the bits and pieces i wonder who has them i don't know if there's a young museum somewhere but there's a he set the photograph of it to um jb ryan at the duke university in the states and he was the he's the one who put the es you know esp in the lab and he was doing all the esp um and you know other extra century sort of stuff there so yeah so this kind of stuff was always around you it's always around him and he kind of he said it, it he, he kind of kept it under his hat as it were until sort of the early 50s late 40s after he had a heart attack um in sort of 44 and he would have been in his mid-60s and uh when he was in the yeah, he slipped and he broke his leg or something. And then when he was in the hospital, he had a blood clot and he had a heart attack. And then he had a outer body experience and yes. had all these visions. And he was floating up above the planet and he thought it was time to go. And there was, um, you know, a, a Hindu temple and all these candles lit and a, a, a mystic was at the entrance. And he sort of knew once I passed, you know, that gate or something along those lines and then up from the earth came this figure of the greek uh god asclepius of, of medicine but in the form of his own doctor <laughs> and and saying that no no you can't go so many many back on earth must uh, most of them women saying you must come back <laughs> and, and, and you must come back your work isn't done yet no and young is basically saying you know, actually, no, I really want to go. <laughs> but no, he said it was very painful to go back. And I'm, I'm kind of making light of it, but it's actually quite a you know, remarkable account. And he, he, he sees his nurse as a Jewish woman and, and somehow they're going through this Kabbalistic marriage. And I mean, you get a taste, if you, if you know his, well, his autobiography or his memoir that was sort of dictated to Aniela Yaffe and then a few hands are on it by the time it got uh, published, but um, he tells the story, but you get a taste of what kind of the red book is, is about. It's about these, these visions. And so you get a little flavor of it um, uh, there. And after that, he sort of felt like this was a sign that um, he should kind of come forward. And he, he kind of is this prophet towards the end. I mean, I don't, I don't know, yeah. a sage, 
you know, he's he's the this this the sage of uh, 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 of Kusnak, you know, um, uh, and um, Bollingen, you know, Tower and, and all that. And you know, in his last years, he 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 rises to this kind of prominence, and you know, he's on the cover of Time magazine and all that sort of thing. Yeah, it it did seem like his out of body experience sort of pushed him to at least in in your writings um in in the book it, it pushed him to be more open about that. It almost proved to him what he had sort of started to believe in his life's journey. Well, I think it's something that he always knew and he did believe, but um well, he's always saying I'm a scientist. Yeah. His insistence on that I think is one of the reasons why many of his writings seem they're not uh, as clear as one would want them to, or he would want them to be. I mean, there's a certain, um, you know, uh, obscurity to, to, to the, I mean, uh, of course the material he's, he's dealing with is, is obscure and, you know, you, you know uh, that's one of the characteristics of dreams and, you know, the symbolic world that you, it is obscure and you can't kind of dictate, uh, as Freud says, you can't dictate to phenomena what their characteristics should be. And this is how it is. So granted that, but then still, you know, um, he, I mean, if you know the first book that Symbols of Transformation uh, has had several different titles and he, he's tinkered with it over the years, but this was the book that marked his break from Freud and um, where he's, he basically says, well, the sexual theory just can't cover everything, uh, not only just neuroses, it just can't cover all the phenomena of the unconscious and incest we have to understand it symbolically and it's about consciousness breaking away from you know the great mother and and it, it he takes on a larger mythic he wouldn't say metaphysical but, but there is this kind of struggle you know of consciousness awakening from this embrace and um and 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 it has a pro, what he called projective tendency so it has a future oriented rather than causal with freud it's all this oh this is what you're like this because this happened back then and that's a splinter. We'll take the splinter out and then you'll, you should feel better. And then you just should be able to adapt to society and be normal. And Jung's basically said, well, adapting to society is not a, a sign of psychic normality. You know, there are, you can be even more normal. You can be super normal. And that, that's sort of, he, he's going in that direction, basically. And but it, it, it takes a while before anyone reading this book, certainly Freud, to realize what's actually going on. Because it's not until like the last <laughs> chapter, and you've already gone on this. You, I mean, if you you know if you remember Joseph Campbell and all all that, um, you know, uh, the, the myth, power of myths. It's sort of like you've had all the episodes um, uh, at once, or at least you know several of them. You know, in, in a few very dense chapters. <laughs> so you're on this ride, and then you at the end, the last chapter, which you agonized over, or the last section of the book you agonized over for a long time. Um, it, it's sort of announcing in, in so what I'm trying to say he's he, he's very rarely just straightforward and kind of says it I mean that's one of the differences between Jung and Freud it was whatever you think of Freud he's actually a very very clear writer so we've been hinting around about this very interesting book called the red book and this was an endeavor of Jung's throughout a couple years of his life right Oh, more than a couple. Than I mean, it went on. It went on for uh, quite some time. I, I, I think certainly. I think it's it sort of peaked during the war year, uh, the World War One years, and then just after. And then I, I, I think, um, I think in the twenties. I mean, I don't. I'm, I'm sure the young experts out there were already phoning in, <laughs> but around then, that it kind of it, it wasn't as much, you know, um, something that he was doing, and he put it away for a while. But it certainly was over several years. It was more than a couple. Yeah. Do you think that like one of the precursors to this experiment of Jung's was his series of prophetic dreams that had ties to the world wars? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, well, they, they were part and parcel of it. I mean, that, that was what was going on um, that led him to start, you know, uh, recording these experiences. I mean, that he tells that story in Memories, Dreams and Reflections. Where um, yeah, just uh, after he breaks with uh, breaks with Freud and he's excommunicated from you know the Freud the psychoanalytical community, of which he was you know a central part. He was second in command. He was the prince. He was going to inherit everything and carry it on. 
Um, then he's, you know, he's sort of excommunicated. And that, that's been the whole idea of, oh, Jung the mystic, and he's a mystic, and he's a racist, and he's an Aryan, and he's a, you know, ah, it, well, I don't know if he didn't say fascist thing, because that wasn't quite the term yet. Uh, but in any case, he's all these horrible things, and he's out on his own, and he starts to have a breakdown, you know, because it, it was, a, it was a, an you know, incredible, difficult, incredibly difficult, difficult thing to do because he had to basically turn his back on Freud who, who he loved and, and Freud had this extraordinary power of uh, getting loyalty from people and uh, I mean so there's quite a few cases of, of you know people who he dropped committing suicide or, or having nervous breakdown I mean Jung was one of the most remarkable and actually creative you know something creative came out of it uh, others just you know killed themselves and so but um yeah he's so he's he starts to record i mean he lets himself go mad basically he, he he's kind of the original wounded healer or you know the the um the modern version of it um he's having these visions he sees um you know waves uh, uh water rising up over the cities over europe and it doesn't reach switzerland because the mountains keep it at bay but it's full of debris and blood and catastrophe you know this goes on on a train ride zurich schaffenhausen and it you know it goes on for about an hour and he's you know this is the kind of stuff that people come to him about and he knows he's already he's spent years working at the Bergotsli, um, uh clinic in, in Zurich uh, dealing with uh, mostly psychotic and schizophrenic. I mean, Freud dealt with um, uh, neurotics um, and, and some and hysterics, and, but Freud, uh, Jung is the one who's really dealing with, you know, people, psychotic episodes and long hallucinatory states of mind, and, and it's happening to him. As we say, it, he, he, he realizes that, and this is something he'll say later on, he realized there wasn't any way out round, or around it. I had to go through it. So he basically said, I, 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 I stopped putting off this horrible pressure that he had been feeling for you know, quite some time that he was going mad. And he just said, OK, if I'm going, basically, if I'm going mad, let me go mad. He sort of started having these fantasies and he, he dropped down in this descent into the underground and he lands in this kind of squelchy, you know, watery kind of place and he has all these visions and, you know, there's the, the huge kind of stone and he moves it and it's a geyser of blood and you know the variety of different the scarab and all these kinds of things and it's remarkable and this is his entry into what he later later will call the collective unconscious or is also the objective psyche and fundamentally it's a again it's an interior terrain that's objective in the sense that it has its own kind of geography um, and its own inhabitants the young will find but it's subjective in the sense that it our, our access to it is with, through ourselves. I mean, he went deep within, and then Jung developed the technique that he later called active imagination for consciously entering into a kind of dream state, you know, or uh, an extended kind of reverie. And he had remarkable powers of doing this. And much like other people I've written about, Rudolf Steiner had something similar. He talks about seeing the Akashic record, but he too had... Uh, psychic experiences, seeing spirits and things of that sort. And Emanuel Swedenborg, the uh, 18th century Swedish scientist like Jung and, and um, studied the brain and many other things in, the, in his 50s had a, a kind of transformative experience where he became a, I don't know, kind of religious visionary and wrote these very, very sober, you know, uh, mundane, matter-of-fact books about the spirit worlds and heaven and hell and all that. And, and he too was able to go into these extended sort of reveries or there's a, a state we entered, we both of us, all of us do uh, t- twice, twice, uh, twice a day, uh, hypnagogia, hypnagogic state, and it's in between sleeping and waking. So as you're falling asleep and as you're waking up, you, you can learn to stay uh, awake in that state for longer periods. Um, if you become aware of it, catch yourself um, in it. And um Jung, Steiner, Swedenborg, and many others were people that knew how to do that. And Jung, he, he could have took that was like a natural ability and then developed this technique of active imagination where you engage with the fantasy rather than just let it kind of, you know, ramble on by itself. You sort of engage with something and you, you, you kind of have a dialogue with it. And this would be something that you would learn. And he, that's what the Red Book is, that he has all these extended dialogues with these inner 
entities. And the fundamental thing he's told is that um, you think your thoughts and your feelings and what happens in your head is all yours, and it's not. They're just like in the forest, you don't, you, you don't, it, the forest isn't all you. You share the forest with, you know, the flowers and the trees, birds and bees and whatever and everything else. And likewise in your head, and this is what you have to learn. And this was, and, you know, you can understand why he thought he was going crazy because this is here, Dr. Jung talking to people in his head. And this is what people came to him about. Right. Well, I, I'm interested in what this might look like. Like, set the scene for us. What do you imagine Jung did? Did he go into his office and, you know, blow out the candles and just sit there and think? Or was he meditating? Apparently he had a room um, in Kusnok, that, um, which is a house where he, he lived with his family and saw his clients when he was practicing uh, you know, independently, and um, apparently he had a room, and it was um, sort of stained glass window in it, and he was able to adjust the light in it, and he would go into a reverie. Uh, or, I mean, later um, in the twenties, after he built Bullingen, which is this medieval turret kind of tower on 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 Lake Zurich that that he built. I mean, Jung is very lucky. I mean, he married one of the richest women in Switzerland at this time and and she was she was you know dedicated to him and she had to put up with quite, quite a bit and he you know built this place as his kind of man cave i guess people would say today man tower i guess yeah well i guess i guess it's phallic i mean i'm sure we can go that road i'm sure this thesis is plenty about the phallic symbolism of of jung's tower and all this kind of thing and freud's probably saying you see i was right <laughs> but any but, but, but any in any case you know so he and there and even there he was able to do it more you know even even deeper you know because it was you know it was no electricity it was primitive and he was able to go back 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 you know down, down into the deep, the two million year old man and all of that to get down into this deep, you know, place. And, he, you know, I mean, lucky him, he was able to do that. And he also produced, you know, stuff for other people to follow in some way, if you can, you know, we all can't have our, I guess we can have our inner tower, you know, we all can't have <laughs> bowling bin, you know. I'm dying to ask about synchronicity. Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about synchronicities and and the principle and and what it is? Synchronicity is a coinage of Jung's, which it's it's basically it means meaningful coincidence when well, something in your head and something outside in the outer world happens, and they're at the same time, and they're not causally connected in any way. Um, but they are meaningfully connected. And they're so meaningfully connected that you say, okay, what, well, you know, you hear the Twilight Zone theme, uh, and you think, what, who, uh, what, you know, who, who, how did somebody know that, you know, that, that kind of thing. Or you just shrug it off and you think, oh, that's, but you no, know, Jung said these things happen and he, you know, basically, this was the coinage he had. And then <laughs> this is the, one of the things. And then he, you know, he did this, this, book with um, Wolfgang Pauli, who's a you know, renowned uh, physicist, and he was very interested in, in this idea of synchronicity as well. And, and Pauli was someone around whom weird things happen. There's something called the Pauli phenomena, where like, uh, laboratory equipment would break down. If he was within a certain radius of, of, a, of a lab, things would just happen. Experiments would fail or something. And there's a funny story where something happens. I forget exactly where it takes place, where some, something ha- is happening. It, something breaks down and they say, well, for once we can't bring Pauli. And then someone finds out that actually at that time he was at a nearby railway station, you know, waiting for a train. And so he was around some, and like Jung, similarly, but it was all this kind of I don't even say uh, catastrophic kinds of things. Jung had one half and Pauli had the other, but in Jung's half, he labors at trying to, this is, I'm sad to say, this is where he's at his worst here, Dr. Professor Stahl, because he's laboring to make it scientific. Uh, and again, it doesn't, it doesn't invalidate what he's talking about because it's, yes, I mean, yes, it's absolutely true what, what he's saying. I mean, these things happen. I mean, I, I just, I, I did a book last summer during the lockdown uh, here, and um, it was should have it was supposed to come out um, this spring, but it, COVID 
apparently uh, wreaked havoc on the publishing industry. So I was pushed back a year. So, um, but it was about my experiences with synchronicity and, and precognitive dreams as well. Oh, wow. And so, I mean, I've, I've kept a long record of them. I know what he's talking about. Uh, it's just that it's not, he doesn't present it very clear and he wants it to kind of be scientific. And again, I sound like I'm down on Jung, but I'm not, but, but it's, it's, I mean, we have them, there, there, these things happen and his, um, and he, he sees it as a kind of, he, he calls it an a-causal uh, connecting principle, which means, as I said, things are connected, but they're not connected causally. So if you hit, a, if you hit a nail with a hammer, the nail went into the wall because of cause and effect. But if, I don't know, if uh, you, you, you had a dream about somebody and then that day and you hadn't seen them in 10 years and there they are, you know, um, on the bus right next to you or something like that, you know, that would be, ah, oh, it's not causally connected, but it's somehow meaningful. And other people have picked up on it. F. David Peat, who was a physicist, uh, he died a few years back. He developed the whole notion of synchronicity as being a kind of fundamental scientific I don't want to say law, but, you know, um, a pattern. So people have expanded it in different ways. But um, yeah, so that that's what it is. The example that you used in the book about the plum pudding uh, synchronicity mm-hmm. was was quite uh, startling. Pretty A pretty good example, I guess, of um, or at least a, a concise, clear kind of example of, of what this is. Um, because I do find that, and you and you reference this in the book, they are so hard, they're so personal that they're hard to describe, and they take a lot of background. Monsieur Fortgebu and, and the plum pudding, that's sort of like one of the up in the top, you know, five cases of incredible coincidences. The story is told about this French poet, and it's told by the French scientist Camille Flammarion. He's another one, he's a collector of coincidences. And this is the classic case where... When he's a young boy, this poet is introduced to this rare English delicacy called a plum pudding uh, at and some place in France. And he's introduced with this gentleman, Monsieur Fortgebu. Years go by and he hasn't had it ever again. And then he's walking past a, I don't know, a cafe and he sees in the window that they have a, some plum pudding on offer. And he goes in, he says, oh, he remembers that wonderful time when he had it with Monsieur Fortgebu. And I must have it. I haven't had it in all these years. So he goes into the cafe and he sits down and he, or, and he orders it and he says, I'd like to have this. Oh, we're sorry. Uh, but uh, that was the last slice and it just was taken. And it turns out that it was taken by Monsieur Fortgebu. And then some other time goes by and then this poet is at a party, at a, you know, some swanky house, you know, mansion in Paris somewhere. And um, along with this <laughs> banquet, what they're serving is, as a delicacy for a dessert, is plum pudding. And he tells the story of his previous two episodes with the plum pudding and Monsieur Fortgebu to the company at the dinner just before they're about to have it. And at the end, and he says, and all I would need now to complete this tale is for Monsieur Fortgebu to turn up. And then there's a knock at the door. And it turns out it's Monsieur Fortgebu who was invited to a dinner party, but not that one, another one in the same building, and he went to the wrong flat. That's like the peak of all these incredible coincidences. But technically, I would say that's not a synchronicity in the sense that it didn't, doesn't seem to have any personal meaning for either of them. It's meaningful coincidence. And so somehow they, the meaningful coincidences tend, do tend to be more personal because it's somehow about you. It's so much about you and about your concerns that you do start to think who arranged, someone has arranged this, someone who's reading my head, or who knows what I'm thinking about. Cause this, I'll, t- I'll tell you one of my own, just this um, fairly, fairly recently. It was last year, just before the lockdown started last year. And I was on my way to give a talk at the Theosophical Society here in London. And I was giving a talk on, um, this writer who's been very influential in my, uh, for me, uh, my work and my life, uh, named Colin Wilson. Um, most famous book is The Outsider, but then he also wrote lots of books about the paranormal and mysticism and the kind of stuff we're talking about. And um, on my way to um, the Theosophical Society, I thought, oh, I'm just going to pop into the market here because I, I realized I wanted something. I forgot what it was. And um, I, um, 
got what I needed and I got in the queue or the, the line uh, to pay for it. And, you know, they have like a magazine rack along the way. And I look over and uh, there are um, copies of uh, different fashion magazines and one is Vogue. And I forget what was in front of it, but there's something here, then a Vogue and then something above it. They were kind of stacked like that and like a cigarette. And I look over and I'm about to go give a talk about Colin Wilson, whose most famous book is called The Outsider. And I'm going to talk about The Outsider in this talk. And I look over and on this little bit of the cover of Vogue, I can see it says The Outsider. Just as I look over and I saw it there. So I'm about to go. And so I snapped that in my phone and then I have that one. And so, and then the funny thing is later that day on the way home back, I wanted to get something else again. So I went back to the same market and I thought, oh, I wonder, I'll go see if that, you know, you know, magazine's still there. And I go there and it wasn't there. So the, if I hadn't gone in at that moment, I wouldn't have seen it. So The Outsider, that magazine, that, that was really placed there. Um, originally, you saw that really there. Um, it wouldn't have been meaningful to you if you weren't going to give that speech you might not have noticed it, right? Well, I mean, I, I, would, I, would have so, I would have seen it and thought, oh, that's funny, you know, because it's, it's like, it's a, it's a very important book for me. And I've, I've written a book about Wilson and I've given talks about him and, and people who know my work know that he's influenced me. So if I, I saw it, I would have thought that's, that's funny. I later found out that it was about some pop singer, some outsider pop singer, somebody who made it in, you know, Dark Horse or whatever, that kind of thing. But I was on my way to give a talk about this and I'd just been refreshing my memory about it, you know, reading stuff, you know, and all that kind of thing. And I had, you know, gone through the slides I was going to show. So I'm just literally on my way and said, Oh, I'll just go in there. And like, whatever, three minutes later, it's like, ah, right there looking at me. So I thought that was a good sign. I went and gave a good talk and I said, here, (laughs) so it was seen to me when you're in, an energized kind of upbeat, you know, positive, purposeful kind of mood, you know, whatever, walking on sunshine kind of thing, uh, it radiates out in some way and you get, you, it reflects back and somehow it, um, and likewise, if you're in a very bad mood, you know, if everything is painted black or something, then that, you know, it, it, so, I mean, that sounds like kind of, you know, simple, mindfulness or new thought or whatever, but I don't go out of my way to sort of try to make these things happen, you know, because it's me, it's more, uh, it validates them more if they just happen by themselves. If you have to ask, then they, it isn't. That's, what I'm, that's my test. If I ask whether it was a synchrony or not, then it wasn't. If, if you don't have to ask if, if, it, if it happens, because they're so like bang in the head. So then we can't necessarily create synchronicities. Um, we can just observe them. Well, not, I'm saying we can't. I'm saying I don't try to. That's what magic, magic is, making them happen. That's what I would say. Magic is induced synchronicity. And there are some people who say you can in some way. I mean, I don't, you know, we are making them happen on some deep unconscious or subconscious kind of level. The more you would develop this kind of creative dialogue with your, you, this other part of you, your unconscious, or as it, it, just as much as we can call it our unconscious, it can call us, uh, well, yeah, you think I'm your unconscious, but you're, you're just my little, you know, light bulb ego up there. And I'm like, really all this big thing back there. And you think you're the one in control. So it's getting that dialogue between the two. And, you know, you can think about it as between the right and left sides of the brain or whatever, but there is a kind of polarity that when it's in a creative tension, a creative dialogue, things happen, you know, and you can funnel it into creative work, writing, producing, painting, music, or, you know, perhaps funnel it towards something of a kind of, you know, magical way. I don't know. Because these things, they do happen. I mean, I, I, I don't try to make them happen. I'm, I'm, I'm more interested when they happen by themselves. And then I try to, okay, what, what was going on? Because in that sense, I'm a phenomenologist in that way. I, 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 I'm, or a naturalist in, in that sense. I, I want to observe the thing in its natural kind of habitat rather than kind of force it out of the bushes so I can take snapshots of it. 
because I, and I agree, I think they're generally good experiences, right? Um, or happen if you're sort of in that upbeat mood. Um, and, and you mentioned if, if you have the outlook of uh, paint it black or something, for example, um, you, you know, there, there's an opposite end of the spectrum. Is that where black magic or the idea of like a tulpa can come in? Well, in a general sense that, you know, it's all about our inner thoughts being projected out into the world. But um, I mean, black magic is more specific, I would say, you know, you're, you're, you're using kind of magical means, whatever, uh, how you understand how they work, whatever way for your own kind of selfish ends, um, or, or somehow to achieve um, some objective that you wouldn't be able to any other way, put it that way. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's all these fine tunings about it. Uh, with the tulpa is um, is a kind of thought form that takes on um, an objective reality. It's out there, really out there in, in the in in the physical world. So it's out there, out there. <laughs> so, so the tulpa, you know, and this problem with the tulpa, it's the sorcerer's apprentice. Um, it gets out of hand or out of mind, as it were. And um, yeah, the famous story of um, the the French explorer and uh, a scholar and, and mystic herself, Alexandra David Neal, who uh, journeyed to Tibet in the early uh, 20th century. And she was studying at a monastery and they were, it's, it's part of this Tibetan kind of magical practice, the tulpas, it's, it's about controlling thoughts. And it's also tied into the fundamental idea that, you know, as you can create these thoughts and they are the product of your mind, so too, you know, the, the world that we see, this, this sensual reality is itself a product of the mind too. So um, the tulpa is not supposed to be in itself something that you, I mean, you, it can be used for magical purposes, but it's supposed to be more kind of a, um, a sign, you know, uh, indication of something to show you uh, an example of something. In any case, she tells a story where she creates this monk, uh, a mental image or thought form of a monk that, takes on his own reality and then he gets out of her control and the head of the monastery comes to alexandria you have to get a hold of your tulpa he's you know he's messing things up he's cooking the whatever he's picking the cooking pot over or something whatever and so she has to somehow get him and, and absorb him and so absorb these thoughts back and so i mean it can be you know they can be used for something not quite the same but in this Along the same kind of lines is what's called an egregore, which is um, a more of um, a thought form that's created by a group of people. And that can get out of hand um, and uh, start to control the people that, you know, gave, gave birth to it, as it were, and, and grow and grow and demand more and more and more followers and things of that sort. And they're associated with the political <laughs> parties and and candidates and I've, I've written a bit about that and tulpas as well in this book i did about trump uh, remember him uh <laughs> um, a few years back called dark star rising do you get emails from people uh randomly uh describing their synchronicities but sometimes you know uh yeah um variety of different things at times i know when i was doing this book i mentioned earlier mm -hmm. i wondered if anyone had thought about collecting people's dreams leading up to when COVID started to become, you know, obvious that it was, it was really happening and, you know, uh, a crisis and all that. And when I, I sort of posted that on a tweet or something and, and some people got back to me and at, at first I thought I might be able to do that, but the publisher I was doing the book for uh, wanted to keep it a short book. So I didn't really have space for it. So, uh, but I, I think some people may have done that, but yeah, some people do, but it's like, it's, it's sort of like, there's not much you can say other than, wow, you know, it's mm -hmm. kind of like somebody else's dream. I mean, I'll tell you one thing, though, that to me um, led to my doing the book. The year before, I had given a talk when out in the real world uh, in, in Brompton Cemetery, of all places, talking about the real world. Um, and this was um, part of a series of talks given at different locations called On the Borderlands of Sleep. And I gave a talk about, I mentioned earlier, hypnagogia. So I gave a talk about hypnagogia and this in-between state and different people have explored it and, you know, what they found and da 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 And then I um, also tagged on some of 
my experiences with precognitive dreams and, and talking about some of, some of the people that have studied precognitive dreams and written about those as well. And I told people, I said, the, I, I tell you, the only reason I know about this, because I, I was, I have dream journals going back to 19, 1980s with, you know, quite a few dreams of, of this kind. And I just started writing my dreams down. And because I read a book, a, very quickly, a book called An Experiment with Time by a fellow named J.W. Dunn. It wasn't a mystic. He was an aviator, uh, aerodynamics engineer. But just by chance, he discovered that bits and pieces of his future turned up in his dreams. And he said, if you can find out for yourself, just, just do what I did. Just write your dreams down, pay attention to what happens to you, you know, during the day. And you'll see that, um, you know, bits and pieces of the future turn up in your dreams. It's not that you wake up thinking, oh my God, you know, tea biscuit at, 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 at the Kentucky Derby, you know, or, oh, I, I know, you know, I, I know what's, you know, it's not that at all. You, you have no idea what part of the dream you've had may turn out to be a future event. But that day, fairly soon, my experience, it's usually fairly soon, something happens and you say, that, that's it, exactly. It hits you and exactly says a peculiar flavor to it. Uh, just like uh, synchronicity has a peculiar, unmistakable flavor. And I just started copying this down. And so what I told at the audience at, at the, this talk, I said, if you know, don't, don't take my word for it. But, you know, if you want to find out for yourself, just write down your dreams and see what happens. And so the next day I went on to um, Twitter, as one does. And the first tweet I saw was from someone who was at the talk, a woman. She said, OMG, I, I was at this talk uh last night and it's true and you know the guy said to write my dreams down and i'll tell you and she said the first thing that she um she dreamt that she had she picked up a hedgehog out of the road and put it onto the pavement or the sidewalk in america put it onto the sidewalk uh where it would be safe she didn't want to get run over as they do and uh she said the first thing i saw when i went onto twitter the very first post i saw was how to save the hedgehogs, how to help the hedgehogs. It was all about making sure the hedgehogs aren't run over in the street. And she said, this is true. And so I thanked her. I never heard, I never heard from her again. I, I wrote to her and I said that this is exactly how it is. It's often, the dream is often subject to what's known as symbolic distortion, where it won't be absolutely exactly, you know, what happens. Although often enough it is, it's, uh, you know, it's a, a photorealism. It's exactly the same thing, but very often it's slightly some distorted as dreams tend to do. Dreams have a distorting effect. They have this kind of wobbly sort of uh, effect. And I said, we can't, we can't dictate to dreams their characteristics. We can't ask them to be more precise and less obscure than they are, but that's just how they are. So I thought, wow, you know, somebody else, you know, sort of um, validated this, you know, and um, that's when I thought I should get around to writing about it. Just I've, I've have these stacks of these uh, dream journals going back for quite some time. So, what is the fate of this book? Is it going to be published? Can we read it sometime? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's all done. Um, it's called Time in the Dreaming Mind: Coincidence, Precognition, and Synchronicity: A Personal View. It's all from you know this happened to me and. Uh, no, it was, it was I'll tell you, some interesting things while I was doing the book. One of the interesting things was that, um, I mean, that the, the outsider thing I mentioned was happening while I was writing this book, too. But another thing was, going back to these dream journals from the late 80s, there was a dream in which I was told, stay at home. Don't go out. There's no reason to go out. Stay at home where you're safe. And that's what was everywhere around you at the height of the first um, lockdown here. Uh, stay at home, protect lives, save the NHS, everywhere you saw. And it was like, that was very strange. I mean, I haven't looked at these dream journals in I don't know how many years. And as I'm going through them, there's a, there's a dream from 1989 saying to me, almost verbatim, the exact message that was on you know, the news and everywhere so i thought that was an odd uh kind of strange thing because again i might have picked up and looked through that dream journal last year or two years ago right and seen that and i wouldn't even have noticed anything or i might not have 
thought of writing that book and looked to that dream journal at all um, during this whole time. But somehow I got to opening up that dream journal to a dream that said exactly the same thing that was on, you know, every media, all the media around me. So explain it. I have no idea. My, I'm a guardian angel. That's my theory. Just, and, Is uh, that your theory? <laughs> it's as good as any other one. Yeah. And I, I'm tired of, I mean, give, give, the, give the particles a break. Yeah. You know, <laughs> give the quantum things a break. We ask them to do everything. Just give them a break. Let, and what, you know, you can call it the guardian angel particle. I don't know if you want to, you know, if, if whatever you want to, you know, but I, I'm saying it, I, it's, I'm, it, how should we say, because they're so meaningful, that's what I'm saying. They're so specific, at least in my experience, they're so specific. Um, I mean, other ones are just kind of strange coincidences where it's like, ooh, you know, and that might be just, I don't know, just kind of general, you know, un- unlike Vegas, you know, what happens in the mind doesn't stay there. Mm-hmm. So it could be, you know, general kind of waves of stuff just around you, as it were, peripherally a bit. So you know, a little strange coincidence here and there. But if there's something, well, Jung would say an archetype was activated, which basically means you're excited or something's really bothering you or you worry that there's some kind of psychic tension and that maybe that spreads out and further. And, um, but I mean, a guardian angel, that's you in some way it's, it's, and this is where we, our language breaks down. I mean, I don't know if you know the work of Henri Corbin, um, who's the um, French phenomenologist and then he, uh, student of uh, Persian mysticism who uh, knew Jung and they, they were colleagues at the Eranos uh, lectures that went on for many years in Switzerland where Jung and uh, Henri Korb and Gershom Scholl and Joseph Campbell and many other sort of scholars of um, myth and religion and so on met. But in any case, he had, we're talking about guardian angel, he, he, had, he had this whole notion of angel, but he said angels appear uniquely to each individual. They don't, your angel, won't look the same to somebody else's angel and my angel won't look the same and it could it could be a thing it could you know it doesn't necessarily you know it could and so they have a kind this this uh, theophany or this this you know appearance of them um comes in strikingly unique ways and that's that this is that piercing character uh for me at least uh, when these synchronicities the really you know sharp ones where you think like how this, that's exactly the thing I'm thinking about now. And it's something that's some meaningful thing to me, whatever it might be. And then there's something, and I know people would say, well, yes, because precisely because it's so meaningful, you're looking out there for signs of it, but it's, um, it, you know, it's not, it's not quite like that. Yeah. It's endlessly um, baffling when you have a thought externalized out in the world. And I think that's kind of the flavor of uh, synchronous events that you experience um the all these topics in the occult are endlessly fascinating and i think people are a little obsessive about about talking about these things but i wonder if there's anything specific to you about exploring these occult topics through biography because you've done quite a few on uh helena blavatsky and alistair crowley Hmm. Well, they're fascinating characters. And I guess I'm an existentialist in that way because I, I, the, the ideas, but then it's, you know, how are they lived? Because there are those remarkable characters. You mentioned two of the most remarkable, Blavatsky and Crowley, who, uh, you know, I mean, certainly Crowley took things to extreme. And I mean, Blavatsky, I came away really liking her. Uh, I mean, some people don't like her, but I, I just found her lovable. I'm, I'm sure she probably whacked me in the head for saying that. But I, I just really, I just kind of, I liked her. And Crowley is someone I, I, I wouldn't give him my email or I give him that email address I don't use that often or something. <laughs> but I, I don't think I would, no. no. But he's, again, he's, uh, there's something unwholesome about him. Sadly, because I think he's, you know, brilliant, in many ways brilliant. And he had more than a touch of genius, but it was wedded to a kind of spiteful, spoiled adolescent psyche. You know, uh, but Blavatsky was something, there's something um, fundamentally good about her, I think, and cheerful and kind of life affirming. And, um, but, you know, but they said there, there are characters who had extreme lives. They did remarkable things, uh, did things many people, you know, don't, don't do. And, um, and they live these, they live these ideas, you know, they weren't armchair occultists or armchair, whatever, artists or visionaries. Uh, and they had flaws. I mean, I've been involved with 
a few of these things, you know, for extended periods and others I've studied, you know, from far as it were, uh, in other ways been, been involved in it. And I just find many similarities between them. And that's what I'm interested in because they're fundamentally all talking about the same thing. I mean, different approaches, but it's us, you know, human consciousness. It's, you know, where we are, human being, you know, what, what, you know, where are we? And I would think, you know, on one side, things seem to be getting, well, obviously things are, you know, many ways, you know, very chaotic and dark at the moment, but in terms of understanding human psychology, you know, there is this push towards, you know, more and more understanding us in terms of computers and all that kind of thing. And society even looking at it in terms of system theories and patterns and all that sort of thing. And if nothing else, I would say, the, you know, these people um, exploring these strange terrains, they're affirming our unique humanity in, 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 in these extreme ways, you know, we're, we're, they're saying that, you know, we're not, we're not, um, uh, we can't be accounted for in in, in these kinds of ways, um, and they're you know it's also they're very human uh, because they're striving for something more than the human. They, they show up you know they're, they're humanist in, in in many ways. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs> 